Hello, and thank you for joining us. This is Brian, your host of the Parish the Thought Show. The opinions of said host and our guests have not been sanitized or scientifically tested, so please consume at your own risk. Ladies and gentlemen, and whoever else is listening, my guests today are Brian and Kathy Woodcox. Back in May, he went from minor flu symptoms to full-blown life-threatening COVID. The prognosis was imminent death and saying goodbye to his family. Three months later, he is healthy and well in the face of incredible odds. Strap in for this short but dramatic story of profound faith, determination, and healing. So thank you both for joining me today. You bet. You've had a little life happen to you in the last few months, so I'm just going to step out of your way and let you tell it. All right. Do you want to start? What you remember? Yeah. So uh, what I can recall, because there's a lot of the uh, experience that I don't recall, but uh, it all really started with just having some fever issues when uh, I was, uh, it would kind of come and go as well. I'd have a fever that would get as high as like 103.5 as I remember. And uh, then, but taking medication like Tylenol or what have you would bring that temperature down. And so we weren't terribly concerned. We didn't even really know what it was. And so- And, and this, for, was, this was May? This was May, what would have been the date? 12. May 12th. Okay, just a few months yeah. ago. Okay. Yeah, and uh, we, we thought we had it under control. We thought it was just gonna be a minor, a minor thing. And so we were just handling it that way. And uh, that happened for several days. How long was it? Up through, it was about nine days before we finally, about eight days before we saw doctor, at least a week. It just was not consistent. So. Yeah, and that's all it was. I mean, there really wasn't a whole lot of fever or chills, I mean, or body aches and that sort of thing. It was just the fever was would go high and then come back down. Were you... Did you think, I mean, I, I know we're in the new world of, of the COVID world. So were you really concerned at that point? Or did you just think it was just a, you know, a flu? Um, I wasn't really concerned. I thought it was more of a cold type of thing, a strange cold maybe, or just some other issue going on, not necessarily anything to do with COVID. So I don't know if Kathy felt any differently, but that's what I was thinking during that time period. Yeah, we were both kind of in this mode of, we didn't really think COVID was that serious or that it would seriously affect us. We knew it was a real thing and people were getting it, but I teach school and had been exposed multiple times and had no problems. Um, had some symptoms in November, but he didn't seem to get anything from me and I just kept going. I wasn't, you know, lost my sense of taste and smell and had some headaches and was like, oh, that's no big deal. So, and I had many students who were like, yeah, I got COVID and I'd be quarantined, but it was like the least sick I've ever been. <laughs> Yeah. So we were just, yeah, we weren't really even thinking COVID at that time. We were like, this no, is nothing weird. alarming. And so we finally, after the, the fevers just continued to go up and down, we decided, well, let's go ahead and, and go into the doctor. So on May 18th, so it had been six days of, of having these fevers, we went into the doctor and uh, they did several tests. Uh, they just tested me for flu and for strep. Uh, 
like a, a urinary tract infection, all those different, I mean, it was a gamut of tests that they did and did a blood draw for other tests. And COVID. And COVID. Um, they didn't do COVID at the time. Oh, which, right. which, which seems a little odd that they wouldn't have tested for that since you're showing symptoms of it. Yeah, the doctor at their, their office, they weren't able to do COVID tests. And so they were trying to eliminate other things. And that, yeah, that is interesting. They did, <clears throat> but all the tests that they had done uh, came back negative. So they were a little bit befuddled by things. Um, and so we... Uh, they did send you over to the hospital. Though, yeah, she had to said, uh, let's go over to the, you need to go over to the hospital, get a COVID test and have them, they may want to do like a chest x-ray just to check it out, but they may just do a COVID test and you'll get information about that. The chest x-ray, we got those back. They looked good. There was nothing in nothing in my lungs. They looked fine. And that would have been on the 18th. Uh, they prescribed uh, something called ivermectin, which has uh, been used to treat COVID and just on the, it wouldn't harm me otherwise. And so they wanted to have me start on that just in case. And the following day they called, and this was an interesting part of the story. They called and said, yeah, your COVID test uh, is negative. And so- Everything's negative. Yeah, everything was negative. So that even, you know, concerned the doctor even more. They're like, what are we dealing with here? This is odd. And so we went back into the doctor that day um, she did prescribe a, a steroid that, again, was something that I think they were treating COVID with as well, <clears throat> uh, dexamethasone, and still continuing with the fevers. And so that would have been on Wednesday. And then the following day, we got another call from the hospital, and they said the COVID test was positive. And you know, I'm kind of left scratching my head. And I said, well, I got a call yesterday from you guys. They said it was negative. And they were like, well, you must have, they must have told you the wrong information. So that was an odd thing to have happen. But at least everybody now knew, okay, well, that's, that's what's going on. We've got an answer finally. We don't have to continue doing other tests to try and figure out if it's mm -hmm. something more systemic that was going on. It was almost a relief. Because we were worried there was something super serious going on because all these high fevers. But then we're like, oh, okay, it's just COVID. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Details. Minor details. It hadn't amounted to a whole lot at that point. So we weren't really very concerned at all. And so and they even told him, you're, you're probably almost better. It's yeah. been like 10 days at this point. So you're pretty much out of it. Yeah. And so uh, Kathy had gotten a COVID test just to make sure. And it came back negative. So we were happy about that. So that would have been on Thursday when they talked to me and Friday, Kathy got uh, the COVID test. And so that was on um, the date on that was May 21st. Which so is, yeah, we're looking at nine days at that point. Which is also kind of remarkable because I've been sleeping with him every night for like nine days and he's definitely contagious and I was still didn't have it. So that was... It's mind boggling how it spreads and doesn't spread. Yeah. Really. Exactly. <laughs> and so on uh, Saturday... Uh, that's when I started to have other symptoms besides just the fever. Um, we have a, a pulse oximeter that we keep at home because uh, we've always had those. We had a, we have a daughter who had allergies and had asthma, and so we always want to have that available so that we can test check her oxygen saturation level. 
And I don't know how people are, how many people are really familiar with what that does. It just tells you how much oxygen is in your blood to make sure that it's providing your organs with enough oxygen. And so a reading on that, you want to be always above 90% is considered, you know, in a safe range. If you drop below that, there's not a huge amount of concern unless it starts dipping down into the 85, 86 and lower. And so that can be reason for kind of some concern. And uh, when on Saturday, we started noticing that I would start uh, dipping down into the 80s. But if I took a lot of several deep breaths, uh, to get more air into my system, then I could get it back up to the low 90s, which is in a safe zone, but it's a little bit abnormal. Normal people, if they're healthy and don't have any other medical problems, they're going to be typically 96 or above. Uh, and Kathy would put it on just to verify it was working properly, and she'd be at 98%, 97%. So that's something that told us that okay well there's a little there must be something going on a little bit but not a lot of concern uh, we did later on in the evening when that just continued kind of throughout the day we uh, we did contact our doctor and told her what was happening and she was like yeah if it's doing that you you need to go into the emergency room because it was evening at that point and so and your symptoms were just what short of breath and I didn't really notice shortness of breath. It was oh, interesting. Again, still the fever. It was the only reason we knew that I was having some oxygen issues was just the pulse oximeter reporting back that I was sitting at like 85 at times. And but you weren't had, feeling anything weird. No, I wasn't feeling any sort of problems with my lungs. I was breathing fine. And I remember calling Kathy that this is really odd because I don't feel like I'm struggling at all to breathe. Uh, and so but having the doctor tell us that you know, we wanted to follow her advice. So we went ahead and, and went over to the uh, emergency room. So uh, Kathy might have to spend a lot of time at this point kind of relating the story because having gone through what we'll tell you about the rest of the story, I don't remember a, a lot of what happened after that. It's, it's kind of amnesia. an amnesia as a result of the experience. And so um, I can fill in some gaps here and there, but a lot of it, you know, Kathy's going to know because she was there and aware of everything going on. Um, but they did do a chest X-ray at that point, once again, just to check, even though they'd done an X-ray just a couple of days previous. And they, that one had shown that, it, that there was some effects in my lungs that was going on that, correct, Kathy? Which one? The... The one on Thursday? No, the one on Saturday. Oh, yeah, Saturday. Out. So, yeah, Saturday when we got there, they did a chest x-ray and the doctor, and they, the same hospital where he'd had the x-ray before, so they had kind of a before and after, and he came in and was just, he looked pretty grave. He said, it's just much, much worse, and he was needing a, a fairly, I don't know, it seemed like a lot of oxygen to us, but it, that escalated to a lot more later, but he was needing about four liters of oxygen per minute to keep his saturation above even like an 87%, he couldn't even really get up into 90 very easily. So they just told him, you know, you're gonna to need to be hospitalized and we don't have any COVID rooms available. So we'll find a hospital with a COVID room and transfer you there. And you should plan on spending the next three or four days in the hospital um, while we watch you and make sure you're gonna be okay. 
And so that's, that's when the transfer happened. It was in the middle of the night. It was like 1.20 a.m., I think. The, the best thing about these, hot, we were at Jordan Valley Medical Centers. And probably the best thing about those places was that they allowed me to be with him. I wasn't vaccinated. And they just said, you know, um, I, have you had COVID? And since I'd had symptoms, I just said yes. I never had had a positive test. But I, um, they just took my yes. And I think also they probably understood that I'd been with him for the past week and a half. And if I was going to have it, I'd already be sick. So they just let me be with him. Um, all the full the staff was always in like full PPE gear. They had on the the face shields, the even the kind of the helmet thing that goes over the whole head, and gowns and gloves, and sometimes they had the, like the respirator that goes on the back. The, the spacesuit. Yeah. <clears throat> the space yeah. Uh, they a lot of those wore a lot of the staff wore that when they came in. Not everybody, but most of them did. And they just let me kind of chill in there with him with no. No mask. I just got to be in there with him, and that was. They they told us they understood the importance of that, of him not being alone and having that support from his wife. Um, they they said they had learned the hard way how hard it was for people to recover and to survive in that. Yeah, situation. agreed. That support. So I was very grateful for that, and I know Brian was too. He said to me several times, "I'm so glad you're here with me." So we were we were happy about that. So by the time morning came, um, Sunday morning, he was, he was not doing well at all. He was needing a lot of oxygen. Um, if he fell asleep, his saturations dropped into, um, down, down to about 70, in the 70s. Uh, we didn't sleep that night at all. And then the rest of that day, we kept saying we were going to sleep, but every time he would go to sleep, the alarm would go off on the monitor. And so I either have to be awake to wake him up and say, take some deep breaths or he, it would wake him up. So we, from the time we got to the ER on Saturday night until the time they put him on a ventilator, neither of us really slept very much. It was pretty, pretty rough. Uh, we were <laughs> lacking sleep a lot, but things started to get, um, started to escalate. And he was, he doesn't remember this much at all, but there was a, an air exchanger in the room that had a big, big silver duct that went out the, out to the outside of the hospital. Uh, they figured out early in COVID that the COVID was circulating through the hospitals through the ventilation systems and that was making things worse. So the COVID rooms, the, one of the reasons they had that is it takes all of the room, all of the air in the COVID room and puts it outside. It doesn't go back into the hospital at all. But that air exchanger is loud. I mean, imagine just sitting in a room with an air compressor going um, yeah. nonstop, <laughs> super loud. So um, just the lack of sleep and the air, the noise from the air exchanger and being afraid of what's happening to him, he was kind of losing it for a little while. He was, it was, it was scary. He was really struggling. Um, I was keeping in contact. We have four kids. We're keeping at a, a text thread going with them, constantly updating them. They were really worried about him. And in that thread, I just said, you know, I need you guys to pray for your dad. He's really, it's, it's getting scary and he's kind of losing it. And we, um, so they started praying. I started praying. I'm pretty sure Brian was praying and he finally started to calm down. I got about two hours of sleep and we really felt like even there were angels in the room. It was, it was nice to have that comfort. Um, they have a thing called a high note, high flow nasal cannula, which is the next level of escalation. Um, he was on that by about two 30 and then he was still really, he wasn't struggling as much that helped him to calm down, get a little, get a little more sleep. 
And then we had, um, my brother-in-law came in with his son. They lived close to the hospital. Um, we don't live close to the hospital. We were at Jordan Valley West Campus down in West Valley. It's about 30 minutes from our house. And we have a son who could have come to give a blessing, but Brian was feeling pretty, like he wanted one right now. So we got them there as quick as they could. Um, they came and gave a blessing and an anointing that also gave him some help, some comfort. He was promised in that blessing that he would make a full recovery. So that was, that was a good blessing. Um, things just kept escalating. And before long, by about eight o'clock that night, he was needing four liters of oxygen, 40, sorry, 40 liters per minute of oxygen. And, you know, we, when I breathe 21% oxygen in the, in the rumor that we have, and when they put oxygen, hook oxygen up, you know, that level of percentage of oxygen goes up and he was at 100% oxygen. He was getting no room air at that point. It was just all oxygen going straight into his cannula. Um, he was about 11:20, just not making it on the hypo cannula. So they switched him to a, what they call a high pressure BiPAP, which is a full face mask that inhales and exhales. It's all sealed off, so everything there is. So it's, it, he wasn't on a ventilator, but he was not breathing on his own. It was breathing for him. And. I knew we were in trouble at that point. I, I don't know that much about it, but I have a brother who's a, a nurse that was texting me a lot. I was telling him what was going on and he was being, he was being real with me. He said, you know, this doesn't look good. The, the, the next step here after this is, is intubation. He's gonna have to be put on a ventilator. And so I actually had him, Brian was awake. Brian couldn't even sleep at this point because he was, had to just use all of his energy to breathe, to keep going and um, they, put him on his stomach. Before they put him on his stomach, he looked at me at one point and said, I feel like I'm drowning. I just like, I, I'm doing everything I can to breathe and I can't, I can't get any air in. And so I had him talk to my brother. My brother was kind of coaching him a little bit over the phone and saying, you know, you can do this. Um, if you don't keep breathing, you're gonna have to go on the ventilator. So they put him on his stomach, which is a big thing that helps people with COVID um, that are it's severe COVID. And he was just, things were just, just kept going downhill. I was a little, um, I was a little irritated at that point because I felt like no one had said to us, this is getting really bad. They're just like, oh, well, we'll put him on this device and he'll be able to breathe better. Oh, this isn't working as well. We'll put him on this one. He'll be more comfortable. And no one was saying, you know, Kathy, this is really bad. Brian, this is really bad. You're dying. <laughs> no one had said that to us. And I think part of their motivation there was they just didn't want him to give up. But at the same time, it was, um, it was frustrating to me that no one was giving me the, the hard truth there. But then they also did, so I finally expressed that to one of the doctors and said, I feel like no one's told me how bad he's getting. And this doctor came in at midnight. So she was kind of new on this, on the scene. And she said, he has just gotten so bad so fast. We have no explanation for why this is happening. We don't know why. I mean, he's not diabetic. Or he doesn't have any of these comorbidities. He's just gotten so bad. And we don't really know why this is happening. So I'm sorry that no one's made this clear, but it's just been such an anomaly. We don't know what to do, what, what to tell you about this. So they finally took him down at about 2.30 and did a, a CT scan of his lungs. And then we had to wait for a while because they thought they saw a clot in his lungs and they wanted to have the radiologist look through that. And um, he finally got that report back and told us that there were no blood clots but the scan showed advanced lung disease. And, you know, Brian's never had any lung issues at all. So for a doctor to say, oh, you now have advanced lung disease and it's just happened in the last 48 hours was just like, I mean, kind of blew me away. 
but he said he's got to be intubated right now. Um, they had asked him a few times before they'd been telling him, you know, you need to be intubated. Every time they would say it to the doctor would say, understand that there's only, there's a very little likelihood that you'll wake up if we put you on a ventilator, but that's the next step. And Brian would say, no, let's wait. I think I can do this. Try to keep breathing. And then, you know, an hour later, she's back in there and Beckon and you know, he kept saying, I remember her being right in my face. Yeah, I do. I remember <laughs> a woman doctor just, that's about all I can recall of this part of the whole, the whole thing was that just really in my face about, we need to put you on a ventilator. And I remember telling her I didn't want to, but uh, I do finally remember her really getting in my face again and saying that, you know, basically if you don't, if we don't put you on a ventilator, you'll probably be alive for about another hour and then you'll be gone. Um, no pressure. So I finally, apparently <clears throat> again, I'm not sure how much in my right mind I was, but I agreed to that. And so he, he knew he was, he was awake. He knew what's going on. I just, it's so odd because I, like I said, Kathy has, has told me all this, but I was just, I'm not aware of, of what had happened all during that point and all these different uh, treatments that they had tried on me. I don't recall any of that happening. And so again, I feel like that's kind of a blessing, but also it, not knowing that it's hard for me to grasp the the dire nature of what was going on if that makes sense yeah totally but she was actually literally in his face because when you have that bipap thing on and he was laying on his stomach so she had to be right there in his line of vision so and um and we couldn't hear him or these are through the mask very well so even i when i talked to him had to be right there in his face and so he's <laughs> when he remembers her being in his face she literally was and so she he kept saying no to intubation. And then finally, when the CT scan came back, she just, there was, it was like, she, she was still giving him options. I mean, letting him make the choice, but the choices were either you get intubated now before it's too late, or you don't get intubated and you die in an hour because your lungs are so advanced. And so he, um, she said, okay. So, and then she said again, remember, there's only about a 5% chance you'll ever wake up from this. And Brian said to her, that's still a chance. And she said, yes, that's still a chance. And he said, let's do it. And so that was the, the final moment. That was, that was close to about 3 a.m. So, so Brian, if you can re remember, like when someone gives you those two options, what's going through your mind? Well, I wish I had a good answer to that <clears throat> because like I said, I don't remember recall. what was going on. Um, sitting here kind of after the whole experience, I can see that saying, you know, that's still a chance. I mean, to, to me, really sitting here and probably to most other people, you know, 5% chance really is like, well, yeah, is it really worth it? But I guess when posed with the question of, or the option of 5% chance, if we do this, 100% chance you're going to die in an hour or less. Easy choice. That kind of kind of answers your question yeah. for you. Yeah. But still not the best uh, situation, obviously, to be in and, and not a whole lot of chance. So, okay. So they did. Um, I didn't, I wouldn't have expected this, but she said, we're going to give you guys some time to say goodbye. And she said, we've, we've also learned the hard way that if you just, we just put someone in this situation, then they never wake up and you never got a chance to say anything. So we got to wait for the pulmonologist to come and do the, the intubation so while he's on his way you guys can have some time alone to talk 
And so I just, I climbed up into the bed with him, got right, because I had to be right there in his face, right? And we just talked and we cried. And and I actually told him, I said, you know, if you get to the other side and, or if you, you know, if you, when they're doing this, because they told us he might actually die during the intubation process, but that they would still, you know, be able to bring him back to life on life support. Um, I told him, I said, if you cross over, like if you're on the other side and you see someone and they tell you it's your time to go, please just go. I mean, I don't want you to go, but I don't want you to stay if you're not supposed to be here. So um, at first he said, no, I'm not going to promise you that. I'm going to fight. I'm, I'm not going to go. And I said, no, if it's your time, you need to go. And, I, that need, and then I said, that will be a sign to me. You know, if you survive intubation, then I'll know you're supposed to be here. And I said, you can't just leave me here with this lifeless body on life support. And I have to make that decision. So if it's time for you to go, promise me that you'll go. And so he said, okay, I promise. So we um, talked, said, kind of said, it's like, it's kind of a weird situation. You know, what do you say? And he kept saying, but I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. I don't know how to say goodbye. I don't want to die. Um, I said, well, let's, let's call the kids. Let's make sure, let's, we've got time. Let's, let's FaceTime with them. So it's the middle of the night. It was 3 a.m. So we're trying to get a hold of them. And we do have a son who lives on the East Coast. So it was getting closer time for him to time for him to be up. He wasn't in his deep REM sleep. So we called, he's our oldest and we called him first and he, um, he answered and, <clears throat> and it was a FaceTime call so we could see him and he could see us and he could see, you know, his dad hooked up to these things. And I just told him, I said, we're calling to give dad a chance to say goodbye in case he doesn't make it. And so that was a tough one because we were live and in person and there was crying and wailing and difficult. And he that just- was normal. Yeah. He just, Brian just said to him, um, you know, told him all the things. He was proud of him. And um, you've been a great son. Love your kids, love your wife. And, and then he said, pray for a miracle. I'm, I'm going to fight. I'm not going to die. Please pray for a miracle. And so we hung up with him, called the other kids, and um, nobody else answered. So he left them voicemails. And each voicemail ended with, pray for a miracle. I'm going to fight, pray for a miracle. And so... He did have, um, I sent a text to his siblings too. They were also all asleep, but one of them called my phone and wanted to talk to him. And so he got to talk to his brother. Um, and then he just, we, they gave us our last little, little minute. Pulmonologist was there and, and he just said to me, I'm, I'm not going to die, Kathy. I'm going to fight. You pray, tell everyone to pray for a miracle. I was like, okay. And as I was leaving the room, uh, my phone rang. It was a FaceTime call from our daughter who had just gotten the voicemail. And so as I was, it was just this little ICU room and I was about to walk out the door and I picked it up and I said, hi, Heather. And she was just, you know, hysterical and crying, mom, what's happening? And the doctor was amazing. He's, he kind of grabbed my sleeve and said, Kathy, come back here. Let her say goodbye to her dad. And so I came back in the room and she got to FaceTime with him. And then she actually stayed on the phone with me while I was in the waiting area while they were doing everything. And um, stayed on the phone with me for over an hour. Just she and her husband were there kind of being my support in the middle of the night. So that was wonderful. So I left and they, they did the deed. Um, I, it didn't take as long as I expected. I was in the waiting room for about a half hour. Well, we were talking about it last night and maybe you can share kind of what the situation was because my oxygen level was so poor and I was getting, like Kathy had said earlier, 100% oxygen and a lot of it that doing the intubation they have to take you off of that bipap machine and switch you over 
and put the chest tube in and all that for the for doing the intubation to get you onto the ventilator. Um, maybe you want to yeah. just mention what what happens during that and how quickly that has to be done. Yeah, when I when the doctor came back into the waiting room, he he first asked me, he said, "How much information do you want?" <laughs> And how do you want it? And I said, well, I'm, I'm pretty tough. You can just, I, I want the truth. I want everything I need to know here. And um, you might need to take some breaks for me, but just tell me everything. And so he told me they had about a fi about 15 seconds. He said, from the time we took off the BiPAP till I got the, the, throat, the, the tube successfully down into his throat, his, his oxygen level dropped so fast that I only had about 15 seconds. Um, he also said, you know, there were, there's things I haven't even told Brian, so I won't say them here because I don't know if he's ready, but there were some things that happened during intubation that were scary and um, kind of gory. He, he told me those things and um, the, the gist of that was his lungs were horribly damaged. And he, if he does survive this and come back, he will not be the same he'll probably need oxygen maybe for the rest of his life because his lungs are so compromised. And I was like, okay, you know, and I'm, you, give me my husband on oxygen all, all day, every day, I'll take it, that's fine. I don't, <laughs> that's yeah. not a bad quality of life. I Better than the alternative. Life. Yeah, so I, I'll take it. But he, um, he told me, the doctor said, you know, I believe in miracles and I'm hopeful that Brian's gonna beat the odds here. And then we talked about Brian's overall state of health before the before COVID, and he said this is a, a bonus. You know, he's he's lived a, a good, um, healthy life. He's never smoked. He's never done anything that would compromise his health here, and so that's going to be a big plus for him. And yeah, we, the, the odds on the ventilator are low. They don't come off of that very often. But he said we're we're gonna. I think you should just be hopeful. Keep everyone praying and. His, he's a pretty healthy guy that's encouraging and we should um, plan on him being on life support for about a month that's what he told me and he said i've got a patient right now who's been on a ventilator for 45 days and we expect him to come off in the next but within this but sometime this week and make a full recovery I'm like okay well that, that's encouraging and so you know i went back to back to his room they let me come back and see him one more time and pick up pack up all my things to leave and everything and then they showed me his x-ray of his lungs and um, yeah, they just looked, there, there was like one little piece of his lung where you could see there was some air in there and the rest of them were just white, filled with stuff. So it was, there was a lot of information there that kind of left me, as I was leaving the hospital feeling like, you know, I, I may be a widow in, in a few days. I don't know how long he's gonna survive like this. I may be a widow in a few hours. I don't know how this is gonna go. And that's, that's an interesting thing about kind of to go back to the x-rays, the, the COVID lungs is kind of what they refer to it because they don't look like pneumonia lungs, your typical pneumonia that people will get where there's actually kind of a buildup of fluid in your lungs. It, COVID almost uh, mummifies. mummifies your lungs to the point where the, the alveoli that are supposed to take the oxygen and, and also they also will, uh, it's what helps get the oxygen into your organs and then your bloodstream yeah into your bloodstream sorry and then it has the carbon dioxide that it goes the other way when you exhale it pushes that back out and those start to harden up with covid and they get they get kind of gummy like and they close and so 
the x-ray doesn't really show those so much that just shows a lack of oxygen or air i guess because we aren't breathing straight oxygen typically but it just shows the, the lack of air in your lungs and so rather than being black like they would be on a normal x-ray it's just a whole bunch of this almost like a, a spider web of whiteness in your lungs and Cloudy. like kathy said there was about i don't know 10 percent. i think is what they told us mm -hmm or told Kathy about 10% of my lung, of one of my lungs yeah. was working and that was it. The left lung was done. The right lung had about 10% of it working. So it wow. was, you know, that there's, there was a lot there. And with all this information, I kind of had forgotten even that he'd been promised in the blessing that he would make a full recovery. I was just like, kind of, and I was trying not to just prepare for the worst, trying to be strong, trying to be stoic. Uh, my best friend had sent me a text around 3.30 and asked how things were going and what she could do to help. And I said, well, they're, they're getting ready to intubate. Can you just come now? So she and her husband came to the hospital and they were waiting outside for me when I, when I came up, when I was done, left. And I, and I did think about staying there with him, but I hadn't slept in two days and he wasn't going to know that I was there. Um, and I needed to shower and sleep and inform people. And I just thought, I just got to get out of here. You know, when you're in these COVID rooms where that thing's blowing and <laughs> I just, my, my whole thing was, I just, I need to go be with my family and, and kind of wrap my brain around what's happening here. I can't just stay here at the hospital. So I left and went home and got home and we have, our youngest son lives with us and he still didn't know. So I needed to get information to him. We had one other daughter that still didn't know. And so we, I came in the house and he, he heard the garage and realized I was home and realized that wasn't a good sign. And so he got on his phone before he lives his bedrooms upstairs. By the time I got upstairs, he had already opened up his phone and seen the texts and then listened to the voicemail from his dad. And he was just hysterical. And I got up there in his room, just crying and inconsolable. So I spent some time with him. And then in the middle of that, my other daughter had gotten her messages or actually she hadn't listened to any of them or looked at her texts even. She just saw that there were a lot of messages and just called me to see what was going on. And so I told her same thing, you know, just, you can imagine finding out your dad on an unlife supported may not make it. So they were both really struggling and um, kind of just stayed here there with them with, with my son that morning and started notifying people. Um, I had my sister-in-law is a widow and she, she called me that morning and said that just make sure you're not alone today. If you need someone to be with you, call me, but just don't be alone not a good day to be alone. And that was really probably some of the best advice that I got. Um, I did spend about 10 minutes alone and felt my world caving in. So good advice. Don't want to be alone in these situations. Let people support you. So I um, got everybody notified, called Brian's best friend, called her bishop, got word out to the ward. Um, really did just believe this, tell everyone to pray for a miracle. And we're pretty private people. You know, we've had surgeries and different things going on in our family that we're just like, you know, we had look, the family knows and that's all it needs to know, maybe a few friends. And this is the first thing we've ever had happen to us where I felt like I need to make sure everybody knows. I need to get everyone praying for Brian and praying for a miracle. And so I spent the day, you know, maybe doing a lot of that. Um, as I was calling everybody, I got, I got off the phone at one point and there was a voicemail from the doctor who had intubated him telling me that he was going to transfer Brian to the University of Utah. And they were planning on starting him on a treatment called ECMO. Um, we didn't know what that was. It stands for extracorporeal 
membrane oxygenation. And it's just basically takes, it, you, they put something in one of your arteries and let your blood flow out into a device that puts oxygen into that blood and then it goes back into another main artery. So it's pretty, pretty amazing. Also very risky, but you know, if it's going to save your life, it's worth the risk. Yeah, it essentially kind of for a time replaces your heart and your lungs. So your heart and lungs can just maybe basically, you know, take some time off to try and heal because this machine is doing the pumping, removing the carbon dioxide and replacing that with oxygen and putting it back into your body. And at the time of this half of this event, um, so I, I actually, when he, I got that message from him and I was just, stupid tired right just so exhausted so I just sent my kids a text and said here's what's happened they're transferring him here's the treatment I don't have time to even figure out what this is I need to sleep so you guys go figure out what it is and I'm going to go take a nap so they did my kids are all nerdy a little bit they like to find information out they like to know things so they all started digging in to find out what that meant so when I woke up from my nap um you had homework I, well, they, they had done all the homework for me and kind of told me what it was. And so I, we were all really, I was so grateful to that doctor that he transferred him to the U. Um, at, at the time that this happened, there were only 14 hospitals in the country that have ECMO and University of Utah was one of them. So we just felt really blessed that just like that was the place for him to go. And I think there might be more in the last couple of months that have gotten these devices because there's more people like Brian that need that. But we... Um, we're really excited about that. Just felt like we're starting to feel just over a few hours here going from, oh, 5% chance. Well, maybe he's got more like a 30% chance or a 40% chance and uh, maybe he's going to make it. And um, after waking up from sleeping, I had texts from, from friends who had heard the news and told me they had, you know, one, one friend said I dropped to my knees immediately and began praying. And as I prayed, I really felt like he was going to make it. And I was like, well, you know, I, it's kind of one of those things where is that an appropriate thing to even say to someone who thinks their husband's going to die? But it really was. It was like my faith was kind of gone. I'd heard, had all this information about how bad off he was and how bad his lungs were. And I needed people to tell me stuff like that, to be able to say that. And had two or three texts like that of people going, I think he's going to be okay, Kathy. I think he's going to pull through. And I'm part of me is like, yeah, you weren't there. You don't know. But part of me is also like, okay, all right, I got to believe. Thank you for sharing that with me. I, I'm going to keep believing. And so um, I was in touch with the university during the day and they didn't start him on ECMO. They kept saying, well, he doesn't quite need it yet. Doesn't quite need it yet. And by the end of the day, they're like, he doesn't need it. He's, um, his oxygen needs, of, he's, he's oxygenating his own blood just fine now. So he never did end up going on ECMO, but that was the kind of the catalyst that took him there to the University of Utah where he could just get the best care possible. So huge blessing there. We were so grateful for that. And in the meantime, with our store, like with, we've got this bakery that Brian runs and it's Monday morning, we're closed on Sundays. So the girls are planning on going into the store in the morning, and opening the store. Um, I, I sent, I, I knew I needed to inform them. And these are teenage girls. I was like, you know, this, this is going to be devastating to them. And it's not the kind of news that they should be getting from me. They should be getting this news from their moms, someone who's there in the house with them that can support them and help them. So before they left for school, it's probably about 6.30, I just sent texts to all their moms and said, here's what's going on. And I did tell them, I said, they don't expect him to survive the damage to his lungs. And you know, they need to hear, your daughter needs to hear this from you and not from me. So 
the girls mostly knew uh, one girl's mom, her mom never got the text. We don't know what happened. It got lost somewhere in cyberspace. Um, but she, she actually went to the store to open the store that morning. And she got there and our son, Ethan was there. He was going to put up a sign saying we're going to be closed for the day. And so that's how she found out was from, from Ethan, but the other girls found out from their moms and like none of them could handle school that day. They stayed home. It was hard. And a couple of them came over to the house to see me after I woke up from sleeping. And, um, also when I found out that he was at the university of Utah, I, it's actually someone from there called me and said, he's here. Here's what's going on. And, and they said, you can't come see him unless you're vaccinated. So that was a blow. I mean, I'm really grateful he's at U, U of U, but I'm like, I want to be with him and I'm not vaccinated. And it's going to be a minimum of two weeks before I can have be fully vaccinated and let, they'll let me be there with him. So I was just trying to process that. And my son, Ethan, he's kind of the, he was kind of the black sheep of the family. He got vaccinated. <laughs> the rebel. <laughs> and I was so grateful he was vaccinated because I knew he could go be with his dad. And I told him, I said, you need to go be, with, I need you to go up there and be with your dad. He was like, I, I don't know if I can, mom. I don't know if I can see him in that state. That sounds like the worst thing I would ever have to do. And, you know, those two girls from, from the store kind of gathered around him with me and we kind of wrapped him up in our arms and just said, look, you can do this. You got to go be there with him. And so he, you know, took him about an hour to get up the, the courage and strength, but he got in his car and went to go see Brian. He was really glad that he went. It wasn't nearly as bad as he thought it was going to be. And, and while he was there, they told him he's making progress. So his need for, for oxygen by four o'clock that day had gone from 100% to 70%. So being there and seeing that and hearing that one of the caregivers there said to him, I've seen people worse off than him make it, Ethan. So I think he's going to be okay. So by the time he came home that, that day from visiting his dad, we kind of, we were almost like 80%, man, Brian's going to make this. He's not going to die. And that was, that was great to have such a quick turnaround. Um, everybody was pretty stupefied. The doctors were just like, we don't know what's happening. We've never seen someone get bad this fast. So we've never seen someone improve this quickly. So what, from the time you went into the hospital the first time, how many days are we into it now when you're at the University of Utah? So this was the transfer to the U um, happened on Monday morning. So it, it was like 36 hours was all it had been. Wow. From the time we got to the ER until he went on the ventilator, about 36 hours. Because just from, you know, listening to this from the street, you'd think this would, this was a month long process. Yeah, right. That you went through. Right. You are, an over, you are clearly an overachiever. No, no, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't me, I don't think. Yeah. But yeah, just like she said, it, they were astounded by how quickly it got so horrible and how quickly it seemed to be kind of turning the other direction. Uh, and again, I'm sedated and, and basically paralyzed from the medication. So all I'm doing is laying there sleeping and letting the machine do the work. Um, right. And obviously receiving a lot of blessings along the way because there wasn't a lot I personally could be doing because it was all kind of being handled. It was out of my hands in a lot of ways at that point. Yeah. So the science said you should have been gone. Yeah. Yeah, or certainly not making any progress really and just kind of remaining steady and hopefully turning a corner at some point. Like Kathy said, they said prepare to have him on the ventilator for a month and we can kind of check and see where we're at at that point because 
at some point you have to make a decision, right? And thankfully she wasn't put in that situation, but that's something that potentially could be an issue or could be something in the future. So but while you were while you were asleep, while you were in a coma, um, you did tell me what tell me talk about what you remember because so, you're yeah. saying that you weren't doing anything, but you were. I like I said, I, I don't, none of this I remember, obviously, because I was asleep at this point, but even the stuff before that where I was awake, I don't recall. Uh, but I do remember that apparently when you're on the life support and sedated like that, they find they have better success where they essentially let a person, that they remove the sedative and allow you to kind of wake back up if you're going to wake up. Just, and they call it a sedation vacation. And they do that on a daily basis uh, because letting your mind and your brain come kind of back to life is helpful when you're on a ventilator. It keeps it keeps you kind of in the loop, if you will, and, and it's just very helpful, they found over the years. Um, and I don't really remember those very well. I remember a couple of episodes where it felt like I was uh, fighting to live, where the whole room, it's kind of like when you, I don't know if you've had surgery before, but when you're first coming out of the, the surgery, everything's really foggy and yeah. the surroundings are a little bit odd. It's not quite like waking up from a good night's sleep. It's just, it's, it's an odd feeling. And I had yeah. that going on, only it seemed more, more, more like I was already on the other side and I was trying to like come back, fighting my way back to life, uh, to be living again. And then all of a sudden I would be gone again. And so that was an odd sensation, an odd feeling to have. Um, it took several days after the whole thing for me to finally go, oh, I, I kind of remember doing that. I remember this fight that I was experiencing on multiple occasions. And I started kind of describing the foggy environment that I was in. And they were like, yeah, that's, that's the ICU, ICU room at University of Utah big glass door some orange and some fog and said yeah there was an orange trim on the door there was big glass doors around the room so yeah you that's that's where you're at and I was like okay well that's basically all I can remember but it makes sense that that's kind of the situation that I was in um, you were fighting that I was kind of fighting yeah. at that point still too and my brother was the second person that got to go visit since I couldn't go and he's, he told me, the doctor there told him that it takes, it was taking a remarkable amount of propofol to keep Brian sedated. It took like almost 50% more than it would take a normal person his size. And if they tried, if they backed off on that, he would start to wake up. So just, he was just fighting like mad to stay alive. And that was apparent from the beginning. Well, he did say it. <clears throat> yeah. Right? yeah. <clears throat> declared it in the beginning. <laughs> Didn't surprise me at all. My brother told me, I was like, he's fighting. He told me he was going to fight. Quick break. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. Hey guys, if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. One, it's free. Two, there are creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Three, Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many others. Four, you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. And five, it's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. It is so stinking easy. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. You will not be disappointed. And we're back. 
that's kind of what I can recall from that part of it, which is kind of nice to have some memory of a little bit of that, not to be completely out of it the whole time, but uh, not a lot of memory of that portion of the whole experience. Um, <clears throat> Kathy was talking kind of about her brother there. And uh... yeah, my brother went on this. So they told me when they, when they thought I was still going to be at Jordan Valley um, indefinitely, uh, they told me they would do the sedation vacations. And I asked if I could be there for that. And they said, well, maybe eventually, but not right at first. He, cause he really won't wake up. It might be a week before he wakes up during the station vacation. So, um, you know, you can come visit him and stuff but we won't necessarily make sure that we call you or anything unless he does wake up. So then they moved him to the University of Utah. So I couldn't be there anyway at all. And so the first day that they did the sedation vacation which was, that was on Tuesday. Uh, my brother, Mike was there with him and Mike is studying to be a nurse anesthetist. So he knows all about ventilators and anesthesia and things like that. So he was looking at the, the monitor and on the phone with me, just a voice call, talking to me about what was happening and um, the improvements that were being made, some big improvements, like even just overnight had made more improvements and was explaining different things to me. And all of a sudden he said, oh, his eyes just opened. He's awake. And we, we weren't expecting that at all. I mean, even he was, you could hear his like trembling in his voice. He was so excited that, to see Brian awake. Um, and I was just blown away. So he put the phone to Brian's ear and let me talk to him. And he said, when Brian heard my voice that tears flowed from his eyes, he was laying on his back and just, so it was, he was, he was not, he got a tube in his throat, he can't talk. And he was very groggy, he sent a picture of us. He looks like, like his eyes are barely open. <laughs> He's pretty sleepy. But he, um, he responded to things. He would shake his head or nod his head and squeeze his hand, um, give him a thumbs up. And then at one point made a gesture with his hand that my brother recognizes that he wanted to write something. So he got a paper and a pen and um, wrote something, kind of scrawled some things on there. I would never have known what they said, but my- It's my, kind of like petroglyphs, really. <laughs> but my brother with his experience in this department you know, he, he's also a critical care nurse, so he's done this before with other people. So he recognized and said, yeah, he just wrote how long. And so he told Brian how long he had been there. And um, he wrote, love you, K and E, because he had talked to um, me and to Ethan. And so he's, you know, he, it just was so awesome. It's just like, he's in there. After telling me he's going to be on a ventilator for a month and we don't know when he's going to wake up, he, he's there. He knows who he's talking to. He's asking questions. Um, but you know, when they're on in that state, they're not fully awake and they kind of drift in and out, um, asleep and awake. So I didn't stay on the phone with him for too long. And he said he needed to go back to sleep and sleep, but he, it was just, that was a great day. Um, it was just another miracle. We weren't expecting that at all. And <clears throat> so good to be able to, um, earlier that morning, I had set up the Facebook group, um, where I had everyone, all of his Facebook friends, all of my Facebook friends. And then I set it up so that they could invite anybody else they wanted to. And so we had about 500 people in that group eventually. And they just were all praying for him. And so to be able to put a post out there and say, hey, here's the miracle we prayed for. He's, he's going to make it. He woke up today and he still has to be on the ventilator. He's still, um, I mean, very sick, not, not good, but he's, he's going to make it. We knew he was going to. So we were very grateful for that and then so he went the next few days the doctors and my brother also kept telling me don't get too excited you know 
COVID does this, so, you know, the up and down thing. And um, if he has a good day, it's probably going to be followed by a bad day. You should just expect that. And I was like, okay, all right, we'll, we'll take it as long as he's just having a good day. Still, he never had a single bad day. Every day was just up and up and up. And he was off the ventilator in five days after telling us it could be a month. Um, it's just amazing. Uh, we were, we were all just blown away by that. And so we'll, um, we could probably move into, Brian can tell you what he remembers next when waking up off the ventilator. Yeah. So apparently they had told uh, Kathy and Ethan that there would be a pretty good chance that the following, so this was a previous day, and so the following day that would probably be able to come off the ventilator. It would probably be the afternoon of that day. Uh, and so Ethan was planning on coming up to the hospital and kind of being there for that. I think he got there at about, if I remember him telling me, about 11 o'clock that morning. And when he arrived there, looked in, expecting to see me on the ventilator and, you know, the same thing he's been seeing for five days. And he looks in there and the chest tube is gone. And he's like, they actually called Kathy and said, they've already excavated him. He's off of ice for uh, he's, you know, kind of starting to wake up um, and be a little bit more aware. And I do remember at that point, again, that's another one of those kind of fighting to be awake, fighting to be alive situation and really not knowing where I'm at because I'd, I'd obviously forgotten again, even though I've been told. Um, but the, the, really the, the first thing I remember was um, somebody coming into the room and of course they're all gowned up um, with like, it looks like a surgeon. I thought it was a doctor who had come in, who had just come out of surgery or something because they've got the hat on and they're all in a full length gown and the mask. And so there's not much of the face showing. And, uh, and you didn't have your glasses. I on. didn't have my glasses on. So <laughs> everything's going to be blurry as a result of that. And I kind of turn to the side and I look up and this person's kind of putting their face next to me. And I realized at that point that it's Ethan. And that just immediately told me that, okay, I'm not gone. I'm, I'm still alive and I'm still here. And I remember just getting a big hug from him, the two of us that I was so glad to see somebody that I knew and it was somebody who was here on this earth that I was, I was, I was hugging. It wasn't somebody in, in, you know, like spirit world afterlife that I'm having some sort of an embrace with. And so I'm still here and he's here. Um, that was, of all this, this was really kind of the, the climax for me of it all was, was seeing him and just, just the overwhelming joy of, of that hug and of that experience of knowing that I'm here and knowing that he's there with me was, like I said, it just, it just filled my whole body. And I, and I can remember that feeling and I'll probably never forget it. And so, so how many days after from that part, how many days after you came off the ventilator, were you hospitalized? So I was, yeah, after I came off the ventilator, they, they transferred me up to just a, one of their COVID rooms out of the ICU at that point. And so I was there for another five days in the hospital. So I was in the hospital basically for a total of 10 days. 
um, and then was you know allowed to go home at that point. So tell me about the other little miracle that you 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 run a business. What is what is your business? It's called Rewhipped. Uh, it's a bakery that bakery. Uh, is located here in Harriman. Okay. And yeah, so uh, it was pretty amazing. Kathy had already mentioned the girls that work at the bakery and how they, we kind of have a really great relationship with them. And they are really kind of some special girls that. Um, they become our daughters. Yeah, they become our <laughs> daughters in a lot of ways. And, and the job at the bakery has really been more than just a job to them. It's just, they care a lot about it. And so when, when this was all happening, Kathy met with them and talked to them about, you know, the situation, kept them up to date, but, you know, what do we want to do with the bakery while this is going on? Cause he could be on the ventilator for a month. And they're like, no, we'll, we'll, we'll keep it open. We will, we'll do what we need to do. And there's some things that, uh, we make, we make primarily cookies and French macarons and pies, hand pies, full-size pies, that kind of thing. And they know how to do most everything, but they've never really made the macaron shells because those are kind of difficult to do. And I'd never really taught them because it's, it's, it's pretty difficult thing. So I would do all those. And they just uh, decided we've got to keep this going. And I showed a couple of girls some of that and how to do that, but they'd never really done it other than maybe once or twice the macarons. the macarons and they just kind of took it upon themselves to kind of take over everything and do their best to keep obviously all the cookies in stock they were very confident in doing that but they also started making the macaron shells they weren't perfect yeah. but it's it's something that you know just kind of goes to their character and how much they care that they will will do this to the best of our ability and and to kind of keep the store running. When Brian was learning to make macarons, he made thousands of shells that he threw away because they weren't good enough. And they asked me and they said, can we just, can we take our, our practice shells, macarons and sell them for less money, call them training macarons? <laughs> Do it. And That's thinking. That's thinking. Yeah. So they didn't have to throw stuff away, but people were still, you know, they knew about our situation, wanted to support us. And they came in and bought those training macarons and it was, it worked. Well, it's, it's a testament to them, but it's also a testament of your character that they, you obviously is such a stellar human that they would want to step up and take care of the situation in your absence. So that, that tells me a whole lot right there. Yeah. They think a whole lot of it. They love it clearly, lot. clearly. Now that you're out of, you're, you're out of this, you're home. Yeah. So when I was released from the hospital, they sent me home with uh, basically a prescription to to have constant supplemental oxygen of two liters per minute at that point, just through a nasal cannula like you would see on, on people that need oxygen. And so I needed to have that. Um, they, I, I should say so. They, three days before he came home, uh, the, there's like a caseworker, social worker that called me and said, um, be ready, you know, find, find out what you need to do because he's gonna need a wheelchair, a walker, and a bed on the main floor until he can get up the stairs because he was still he was out of the ICU but he was walking around the room with a walker and, yeah, well, and not the, even very much. The first time out of the bed with the physical therapist I basically had to lean one of my legs against his leg to keep myself vertical. Yeah, he couldn't really even hold himself up much yeah. so they told me that three days before he came home he didn't need any of that 
in three days, he was just up on the walker pushing himself. He, the night before he left the hospital, he was walking on his own. I mean, it was slow, slow shuffle, but keeping his balance and um, self-care, he shaved himself, he brushed his own teeth. I mean, things that people aren't supposed to do after they've been in a coma. Now, granted, he'd only been in the, on that ventilator for five days, so he's not going to be in as bad of a state as someone who's been on there for 10 days or a month. But just, they, again, just stupefying these people who were like, you're not supposed to be walking yet. And just came home without any of those needs. He walked up the stairs to his bedroom that night and walked down the stairs that next morning without any, I mean, he had the railing so long, but he just did it. Well, and one thing, because I'm kind of backtracking a little bit, but I wanted to mention it and maybe Kathy can tell the story a little bit better, but what the doctor came in and said, as far as how we, the way we want to try and explain what had happened. Oh, the, yeah. the pulmonologist? Yeah. Yeah, he, um, as he was being discharged, he came and talked to us for quite a while. And then he said, Brian, I, I don't have any explanation for what's happened to you, except God. That's all I can, <laughs> that's all I can explain. And, and we agreed, you know, he just, he said, it's just, we did, we were so scared for you when you first came in. We did not expect you to come to walk out of this hospital and especially not after 10 days. And the only explanation is God. Set and your expectations higher people. Yeah, yeah. He's from India. So I don't know if he even believes what we believe, but okay. Yeah. Must believe something. <laughs> wow. Well, if not, he does now. Yeah. Yeah. So I was on that supplemental oxygen for, uh, what would it have been about full time anyhow for, a month. for about a month. And then I went to just at nighttime or when I was up kind of moving around a lot, or we started going on walks around the neighborhood. So I would take the oxygen with me at that point, but got to a point where if I was just sitting and resting that I didn't have the oxygen on and I constantly was checking my saturation level and making sure it was staying in the nineties. And then about a week ago is when I went off of the oxygen altogether, not using it at night, not using it when I'm exerting. And I just feel really blessed. I mean, we had a lot of miracles. There's not just one miracle that happened. There's many miracles that happened along the way. Um, so super blessed and thankful for kind of what, if there's a good thing that come out of, can come out of COVID, it's that it's increased my faith and I think increased the faith of my family and maybe others as well. And being able to see these, these miracles in my life is just, it was, I guess it, just saying that it's, it was worth the experience. It was worth the heartache. Um, and another thing I've learned and I want to make sure I brought up is the five days where I was in the hospital before I came home, I wanted to come home so bad every day and knowing that I still had, you know, I've got three more days here. I've got two more days here. Uh, when I'm feeling pretty good, um, it wasn't until I got home that Kathy and the kids started telling me all the things that had gone on where I called them on the phone and told them goodbye and all these different things, left messages for them. And it finally dawned on me that in a lot of ways, I had the easy part in all this, that it was really my family and other loved ones that had the hardest part, being fully aware of, of everything that's going on and feeling all that potential loss and just all the anxiety and concern it was, I felt like it was kind of petty of me to be in the hospital going, I wish I could come home because 
that's kind of a small thing compared to all the emotional, I'd call it emotional traumas that they all went through for days. And I really didn't have you know, any of that. Maybe there's other things going on, but I, I didn't have to fight through that. That was not part of what my challenge was. So maybe your trial was more for them than you. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, I've gained, like I said, I've gained a lot from this and increased my faith and, and really made me feel the presence of God even more so in my life than I'd ever had. Now you had that same experience as well. Right. How Your perspective on the whole COVID virus now, you said it was a little, you, you, you were a little, well, maybe for lack of a better term, casual about it before. Yeah. Now, yeah, now after going through it, what's, how's that perspective changed? Um, it has certainly changed. Uh, they've told me that, you know, it would probably be wise for me in the next few months to, to get a vaccine uh, because they don't know how long the, the immunity from actually having the disease will last with an individual. And so, like I said, Kathy and I were kind of not planning on having the vaccine. Of course, she got it so she could come see me in the hospital uh, eventually, which she was finally able to do toward the end. And uh, yeah, I, I do plan on doing that. It's a little scary though for me, having gone through what I've gone through. Um, the doctor did say, hey, you're, you're going to have some PTSD from this. It's just normal having gone through something like this. And I can 100% vouch for the fact that yes, and I still have some issues around that where I get pretty stressed out about things. And, uh, you know, going and getting that vaccine at whatever point, uh, have some concern about that because a lot of people start having some some symptoms, not really catastrophic ones, but they, they don't feel great for the following day. And feeling that come back into my environment, back into my body, um, I have a feeling that may trigger some concern. I can send Overall, you no panic. Yeah. Think. Yeah. You're like, I'm, I, I'm out of this now. I want to reintroduce this to my world. Yeah. It seems a little counterintuitive. Yeah. yeah. So it's. But as far as your feelings on the vaccine, I mean, he came as soon as he woke up. One of the first things he said to me on a FaceTime was, I want everyone to get vaccinated. It wasn't just like, I want all the kids to get vaccinated. I want everyone to get vaccinated. <laughs> yeah. And there were some people in our, on our neighborhood that know us so good friends, well, yeah. said we weren't planning on it, but seeing what happened to you, we've gone and we, we, got, we both got the vaccine, vaccination. Having a personal connection to a story tends to motivate on a different level than... Yeah. Then. And it wasn't just because they were afraid he would get as sick as him. They it brought that reality of, well, what if someone I love is in the hospital and I can't go see them because they haven't been vaccinated. So yeah. it was also my experience of not being vaccinated was pushing people too to go get the vaccine for, for better or worse. You know, I'm not saying that that was like the best thing to have happened, but we, we both, I mean, I've, I've always just felt like people need to do what they feel is best for their body. We're not all the same. Yeah. And, and this isn't a one size fits all vaccine. It affects everybody differently. And so if someone feels like they should get the vaccine, then they should go get the vaccine. You know, I have a friend who's our age, she's diabetic, type one diabetic her whole life. And yeah, she should definitely be eating that vaccine. But, you know, I felt like I was reasonably healthy and didn't need to get it. So I wasn't going to get it. And we, I think we still feel that way. We have two daughters that are not go, going to get the vaccine. 
um, even after they saw what happened with their dad, they're just like, they, they feel like it's not the right thing for their body. And that's yeah. been a hard thing because Brian wants them to get it. <laughs> but we're, you know, everybody's got to choose what they want to do for their yeah. own body. Yeah. That, that whole, darn that whole agency thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, and the, you know, what, what are the chances of somebody having the same experience as me as far as how severe it became? Yeah, you are a rare, a rare most story. Most people don't. Most people can, they don't feel well. Kathy has a sister that had it and she was down in bed for 10 days and really felt crummy, never to the point where she wasn't breathing well and had to go to the doctor, had to go to the hospital, but yeah, she didn't feel well. And she was really down for those 10 days and kind of knocked out. But others, you know, they walk around and they don't even know they have it. Maybe they've lost some sense of smell. So it's yeah. really a, a strange thing. And I believe, I never, I never didn't believe that it was a real thing. I, I always believed that it was. And I knew that people were struggling. And, but many of those were people that were quite elderly or they had other underlying medical conditions. And like Kathy said, we're basically healthy. Fortunately, I actually had a physical, hadn't gone to get a physical for years and decided let's, let's do that back in April. And so the doctors had that baseline to see yeah, he's, he's a healthy guy and doesn't have any of these issues. And we just don't know why this is, this has gone so horribly bad in such a quick amount of time. Uh, it's, we can't explain it. And so it's, it's definitely a real thing. And oh yeah, yeah. everybody, everybody, like Kathy said, has the right and uh, to, to make that choice for themselves. Yeah. Well, I wanted to thank you guys for coming on and sharing this story. That's quite, uh, miraculous on many levels is there anything that you you know find some final words you want to um, say to anyone that I maybe haven't asked as we as we wrap this up well I think it's been it's been important for us to realize that we're, we're living in some pretty it's there's a lot of turmoil in the world right now times are tough and here in our little Utah utopia, we kind of can just not think about it and feel like everything's okay, but there's some serious stuff going on in the world that's very concerning. And it can be really troubling to all of us. And we, you know, President Nelson told us at the last general conference to notice the miracles, to watch for miracles. And I think it didn't mean that much to me when he said it. It's just, you know, he was just giving a talk. And then one of my friends pointed it out to me. And I think really that's what's going to give us hope in these tough times is noticing miracles. And I think we need to focus on that. Watch for miracles. And if people have experienced a miracle, they need to share that miracle so that we have things that can give us hope. And I feel like that's, that's really why we want to get the message out there and talk to people like you and, and be able to put our story out where people can hear it. Cause I, I just like, it's going to give people a lot of hope. And I know that already has. And for me to just kind of wrap, like you said, wrap things up, but um, Kathy said earlier that, that we as a family are, are pretty, pretty tight and, you know, we keep a lot of things to ourselves and, and work on those things and resolve things that come up just with ourselves. But in this situation, like she said, she felt like she needed to get more of the word out and let people start praying for us. Um, I've just been astounded by the support that we've been given from people. Uh, that there's a, there's a huge amount of good in the world, even though Kathy said, you know, there's a huge amount of turmoil. There's also a huge amount of good that just kind of flies under the radar 
in most people's worlds because we don't see that on a daily basis. But just the outreach and the, the genuine concern and the willingness to pray and the willingness to, to, to offer to do whatever they could. And, and we oftentimes, you know, don't necessarily want to accept that, that service that people want to give and that caring. And we just decided, you know, you're denying somebody that opportunity if you won't accept that, that service uh, that they want to give. I preach that so all the time. Kinda, we've kind of given, I don't know if given in is the right thing, but we've kind of gotten to the point where we're like, we need to let people be able to do that because they may be helping us, but they're also helping themselves a lot. And we're denying them that opportunity if we don't. And it's not a sign of weakness to accept help. And yeah. sometimes we think it is. Yeah, 100%. even in, in and then you another thing you said there was you know 500 plus people on this page you don't realize the impact you have on others yeah because we don't see it until something like this occurs and then you see wow i it's nice to know that that i do matter because sometimes we think we don't yeah you know well guys thank you again so much for that that uh has been has been fun hearing your story and uh i will we'll share this with all the my 12 followers. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> Thank you for uh, giving us the opportunity. Thanks, Brian. Thank you again for listening to the Parish to Thought show. We would love your comments and feedback on our website at briankeithparish.com slash feedback. If you love or hate what you hear, please give us a rating on whatever platform you find us. You're still here? Click on the next episode for more from the Parish the Thought Show.